0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Aya Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at A.L. audio. And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast. And I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Plek, who's a producer, mixer, and mastering engineer who owns and operates the Panic Room Studios in Sweden. That's a very well-known studio. You know him for his work with Soilwork, Scar Symmetry, Watain, Mayhem, and even uh, Eurovision. He's done a lot of stuff in multiple genres, and I'm very excited to have him on. I introduce you, Plek. Plek, welcome to the URM podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Sweden is snowy and cold, and it's, uh, yeah, usual weather around this time of year. So just being inside in the studio and doing some work.
0: 24 hours of dark.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the best time to... Uh, yeah, to be doing some studio stuff. I mean, in the summer, at least you can be outside in Sweden for, for a little bit, at least for one day. That's what we usually say, like,
0: yeah, summer is one day a year. So By one, by one day, you mean the six-week holiday? Yeah, exa- yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I've I've seen the pictures from those holidays. That's pretty amazing to me. Uh, one thing I've always thought is incredible is that you guys take that six-week break yeah. and are still productive. Whereas here, people you know, have to claw their way to get a week per year (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, is
1: that holiday, like, mandatory? I guess so. I mean, if you're an employee, it's mandatory in a way. But, I mean, I know basically no one who does that. I mean, if you're a music producer and doing stuff, I mean, you're always working, I guess. So,
0: it's not really... You make the decision to keep working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Is it just because... uh, you know that in music, if you stop, someone else takes the work? Or is it because you have so much work and so many deadlines that you just can't stop?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we have the luxury to just stop. I mean, there's there's so much to do and too little time, I guess. So, I mean, at least for me, I just keep on working. And, you know, of course, take some time off when it's possible. And, uh, I mean, in the summer, maybe I get a couple of weeks max, Every year, but otherwise, it's just full of stuff to do. So you don't turn down work, I guess. So,
0: you know, what I think is interesting about that, um, it's very similar to owning your own company. I mean, it kind of is the same exact thing. If you run a production uh, yourself as a producer or mastering engineer, or whatever, you are your own company. Um, it's you could take the break, but everything stops when you stop. Um, it, I guess with a company like mine, It's not that everything stops. Since it's mine, I know that I'm taking the break. I know that there's things that that I could be doing to help move the ball forward. So I feel that I'm taking the break. And so it's hard for me to take too long. I can't take longer than a week. Yeah. Because I'm saying this knowing that I have an amazing team who uh, do great work. But nobody else is going to do my job for me. So if I take a break, the part of it that's my job just it just stays there. And it's kind of the same as with a, being a producer or something. Like uh, if you stop working, it's not like uh, things keep going. They keep going without you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything stops. It It comes to a halt. And I mean, sure, if you want to do that, fine. But at the same time, I mean, if you want to keep moving forward and doing that at a good pace, I think, I mean, why stop working? Well, sometimes it's good to stop working, but... At the same time, it's uh,
0: it's good to be moving forward. Do you believe the, that phrase that if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards? Yeah, absolutely. Same here. The thing that I've noticed is when people start to maintain and kind of hover at a similar level in music, what ends up generally happening, with some exceptions, what generally ends up happening is that the music scene passes them by. So that works for a little while, say they find some success in a genre or something. um, If they just decide, okay, this is what I do. I'm comfortable here. There's a limited amount of time that that'll work. It could be a few years. It could be a few months. There's no way to know, but either way, there's a limited amount of time that'll work. The music scene will evolve into something else. And so if you're not constantly trying to move forward and Either stay on top of that or a little bit ahead of that, you'll kind of get left behind, yeah, it's just what happens
1: exactly I mean and there's always someone who's willing to to work harder than you. you have to be keeping up with what's going on, and as you say, like if if you stop for for a period period of time, someone else will just you know drive you by
0: so yeah, yeah, there's this thing that I realized when I was producing that I personally didn't know how to get around this. I know that other people I know have figured out how to get around it. And part of it is learning how to tolerate it. I remember that there were certain things that sometimes labels did that I thought were not cool in terms of deadlines or in terms of payments, things like that. And I realized that if I made a, a drama out of this, Like stood up for myself too much that uh, there was somebody else who would work just as hard who wouldn't do that. And they'll just go to that person. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't work for my personality type. I know a lot of amazing producers who figured out how to maneuver that successfully. And I think that a lot of it has to do with they're more tolerant than I am. Like uh, It's not that those situations don't bother them. It's more that uh, they... Can tolerate them, that's all. But that said, I think that that's crucial to be able to tolerate those things and keep moving because exactly that, there is somebody else. There's somebody else who, if you stop working, will work harder. There's somebody else who, if you make trouble, won't make trouble. There's always somebody else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very small pond. I think a lot of people want to do it, but not that many people are good at it. So it's not, it's, it's a... It's a wide pond, or like a large one, of people who state their intent as doing music or production. But in reality, the actual amount of people who uh, are contenders is very, very small, especially in heavy music. For sure. It's a it's a tiny, tiny community. Has this um, attitude been with you your entire career? For sure.
1: I think like... At least in the beginning. I mean, for me, I'm better at it today. I mean, not worrying so much about, you know, someone else uh, taking work and stuff like that. But I mean, in, in the beginning, there was a lot of that. I mean, really worried about, I mean, other people like taking work and I mean, just constantly going ahead and really working too hard, like, you know, 24-7 almost for long periods of time. I mean, w- when you're really young, you can do that, of course. That, that's uh, not really a problem, but as you grow older, <laughs> it tends to, I mean, you need to find a balance somewhere. And <laughs> I'm still not really like super good at that, but I'm
0: getting better. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I think that balance isn't really possible, but it's a good ideal to strive for. Because I don't know a single person who is successful in a creative endeavor. Was a balance, quote unquote balance. The way that, the way that you think it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I don't know a single one. <laughs> no, same here. Actually, I know a couple, but they're psychotic. <laughs> like, they're not really balanced. They behave in a balanced way, but I know that they're crazy. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, when I think about it, like all the guys that I know
1: who are really good at it and does it really, really well. I mean, there's no one who's really does it as a nine to five kind of work and have a super normal family life or whatever. There's always like something something else, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's because of the creative temperament or do you think it's because in order to succeed in the music industry, you have to be a little different just because it's a different kind of industry. It kind of has its own rules and uh, the, the nine to five lifestyle. I mean, there's some things you could do, like you could impose nine to five hours on your studio. You could do things like that. You can have a family. So you can have some things that are the same as what I call the real world. But at the end of the day, this industry doesn't operate by the same rules. Exactly. Do you think that that's one of the reasons for why maybe finding someone that's balanced in what we would think of the mainstream definition of the word is hard to find?
1: I have to agree with that because I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years now and still I'm looking for that person. You know, it's like, yeah, that, that's like a normal, like, normal is uh, it's a weird word, I guess. But at the same time, it's, I mean, it who's really, really balanced in what they do. Like, as you would see, like, someone just going to work and, you know, doing whatever. So I don't think it might be possible to really take that into our industry because as I say it, it operates by a different set of rules. Yeah, it, it takes a different kind of person,
0: I think, to really make it. What what do you think that is? Like when you look at uh an up and coming producer, engineer, or musician, like say someone that wants to intern or engineer like a kid, have you ever met someone who's like twenty or something like that, where you're thinking to yourself, this person, if they don't, you know, develop a drug problem or uh you know, get like three girls pregnant or something, they might actually have a shot at this. Yeah. What what is it about them when you notice that?
1: I mean, really, if we're looking into um, like production and, you know, being in a studio, because that's the focus, right? I mean, not like artistry or like, like we're talking studio now, like studio production. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for that part, I mean, it's a bit different to be in a studio and doing production than being an artist. Sometimes they... Of course combine but I think what, what makes a good assistant I mean they have to be so they have to be really really good I mean I have a lot of talent but talent isn't enough they really need to be willing to work super hard and learn a lot of new stuff and be creative and it's very very few people who have all of, the, all, of all of that as a package you know some people can be they have a lot of talent but they're not willing to work for it. And some just are willing to work, but they have no talent and that's like, <laughs> and that's impossible. Well, yeah, that's sad. So, I mean, there's something weird that happens when all of that just gels, you know, and it's, and it's working. And very, very few people have that. I mean, even, I mean, looking at artists and uh, things like that, it's it's very seldom you, I mean, you run into someone who who has all of those components there
0: to really make it work so you think that uh, that in some ways from what i'm understanding it's the kind of person you are to begin with
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah for sure i mean i agree
1: there has to be something else there that i mean it's not learnable in a way you have to have the raw talent for it and then on top of that you have to be willing to work super hard to really make it work uh, in the long run so yeah so what part do you think is teachable or learnable I mean, all the technical stuff is uh, learnable, I think, and that's not really hard. I mean, uh, I can remember like when I got into this, like the late '90s. I mean, there were internet forums, I think, <laughs> but that's yep. it, like nothing else. So I read a lot of books, a lot of stuff on the subject, and I can like truthfully say now that like the first book I ever read on. Studio like music production whatever, actually held all the information technically that I needed needed to know.
0: Funny how that works, right? I mean, because people are always looking for that uh, that secret or that extra hidden knowledge or whatever, and it's all there.
1: It's all there. I mean, it's not that hard to learn all the technical stuff. I mean, the rest is just experience and just having the musical talent to,
0: you know, make things work. So, so. You know, speaking of making it work, you kind of made it work in a way that's backwards from what's the norm. Most people don't start in mastering and then move to production. Usually they start in production, then mixing, then mastering. Usually that's the progression. It's usually not the other way around. I find that interesting. So first of all, what drew you to mastering as a a place to start, and what drew you out of it?
1: Yeah, it's a weird thing because, well, it's not really that weird, I guess, because there's a really famous producer uh, called Phil Ramon, if you know the guy. Mm-hmm. He um, always had this idea of, uh, when he was training assistants, that they would have to know mastering, uh, at least, you know, to a point, like how to cut vinyl in those days and uh, whatever, because his idea was that, if you don't know what the end medium, the end result, like how that's going to translate to an end listener on a physical medium, you don't really know what decisions will be good or bad in a production environment. It would be nearly impossible, you know, to really make, make that work. So uh, his idea was like, you need to know it backwards. And for me, I just thought mastering was cool <laughs> back in those days. Again, it's like late 90s early internet and like so many guys were into recording and mixing but mastering was still this like black art kind of thing. I thought it was interesting it really caught my my eye so to speak it's um and then I got to work backwards from there really. Of course I, w- I was interested in recording from from the get-go I mean I'm a guitar player from the start so you know I did all of this recording stuff as well of course but then when I got into into mastering, I figured this is really what, to, what I want, um this is really what I want to go ahead with and pursue. And doing that, of course I started, you know, mastering work with all the guys in my area. And I just figured after a while that, all right, so mastering is going pretty well, but I'm still not getting, you know, the results that I imagine from it still. And that's when you get into the mixing part. You're like, all right, so the problem is in the mixing, I guess. So start learning that,
0: you know. Yeah, because you can't master a bad mix into a great one. Exactly. I mean, really, if you have a
1: really, really, really good mix, mastering is super simple, right? And that's what a lot of people get backwards as well. Like mastering is supposed to do this amazing thing. And somewhat, sometimes it can. It can do an amazing thing. But when it does something truly amazing, that's more up to luck. I think, because, I mean, you can't really do that much with the process if everything is really, really locked in to begin with. So, I mean, going to mixing is like, all right, so what comes after that? I mean, if you want to have a great mix, you need to have a great recording. And to get a great recording, you need, you know, good songs, you need good arrangements, you need
0: everything like backwards in a way. So so that's my journey, really. It's interesting because uh, one thing that I try to really, really reinforce to people listening or watching you now the mix or whatever is that if you don't build it correctly from the ground up, you know, down to the arrangement, the engineering choices, the production, a great mix, you're not going to save it in mastering. Exactly. Also, you probably you might save it in a mix if it's a bad production, but. It still won't be as good as it could possibly be. It probably won't be the, you know, the best mix ever. It might just be salvaged. It's hard for people to realize that uh, mastering, it's not a magic solution. So I I remember um, when my band got mixed by Colin Richardson and mastered by Ted Jensen. Okay, so people were talking, this was like in 2006. I mean, we know Ted's great, but uh, I remember people talking about him like he's a god and dream team, Colin and Ted. Uh, So I thought that I was going to get this mix from Colin, which was badass. And then Ted was going to get it and it was going to like 10X (laughs) in amazingness. And really all that happened was it was a little louder and maybe I could hear the low end up of DB or something. Perfect. Best mastering ever. It was though. Yeah, it sounded just. It sounded just like the mix, but louder with a little bit more thump to yeah. it. That's it. But I mean, the mix was great to begin with. It didn't need any salvaging. But that's literally all that happened. Like you could, if you level match them, it's really not that different. Um, and to me, that's some of the best mastering I've ever heard. Exactly. I think in part also though because. But he recognized that he had a great mix. So he didn't just start doing crazy shit because, because he has the power to. I have noticed that, and this might sound really, really obvious, the worse the mix is and the crazier the amount of stuff that the mastering engineer has to do, generally, the worse the results are. Yeah. Generally. <laughs> yeah,
1: generally so, yeah, totally. I mean, when I've gone to master myself, I mean, the best times is like, When the guy just pulls out an EQ, few adjustments, and a limiter, and it's done, you know? Because that's when you have a great mix, and that's when you're gonna get a a great result. You have someone at the end just fine-tuning those little bits that really makes it really balanced. And the hard part to learn about mastering is like, when do you leave it alone? I mean, you have to recognize when you get something really, really great. And you have to recognize, even like you get something really, really bad, and you can't do anything. Like, where do you draw the line? All the experience boils down to that. To really, really know that stuff.
0: Is it more just uh, you hear it, and because of your experience and your knowledge of your tools, do you automatically just have a reaction, like almost like an instinctive reaction that I can't, I can't work with this, or? I can't really do much because like for instance, I know uh, something that I did a lot was edit drums and I got to a point where just hearing a performance, I would know what it would sound like edited or if it wasn't editable, I would just know. Of course, anything could be edited, but not musically. Just by hearing it after doing it for several years, I would just know right away. Is it that sort of thing? You hear it and you just, you know. Absolutely. I mean, as you say, I mean, that boils boils
1: down to experience and and the technical stuff can be learned. I mean, for you to to learn the technical aspects of editing drums, that's, I mean, it's pretty simple, you know, in a way. You know what to do, yeah. But really to gain the experience to know how much can you do, like how is this performance actually going to sound when it is edited, when is it impossible. What's the drummer intending? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing. Of course, like when I hear a mix, it's, I probably analyze so many things in the first few seconds I hear it that I don't really know what I'm analyzing, I guess, but you go through all of that stuff and you know exactly like what to do, where to draw the line, and what's the status of the entire project basically so I mean I, I can even be be working on something in production, and I hear an arrangement thing that I hear instantly like, all right, this is going to be." hard to master <laughs> in context with <rather> <laughs> everything else so like can we work on this arrangement part and maybe do it like this instead you know yeah you really need to go through everything and be working for so many years to gain that experience and of course the the rest that is learnable is pretty simple
0: it's interesting i'm just curious what are the kinds of things like if you could think of any that in an arrangement you would hear just out of curiosity and think this is going to be hard to master.
1: I have this idea of like keeping the speakers happy just as much as keeping the artist happy. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it does. It's like usually if an artist has an idea and they're happy with it, but I know like my speakers aren't going to be happy with this in the end. I mean, usually what keeps my speakers happy will keep everyone else happy. You know, it might be an idea from the artist's point of view that, oh, I mean, this would be really, really good when it's mixed or whatever, but I can already tell like, all right, this is going to really mess things up. And I mean, just from a like loudness perspective, it might be hard to get things to a certain
0: point just because of this little part. Just to clarify, when you mean your speaker's happy, uh, I'll tell you what I'm imagining in my head and tell me this is accurate. So the speaker has to physically reproduce the sound by moving air. And so... What you send to the speaker determines uh, the phases at which it moves and how it moves. And how it moves makes all the difference in the world. Uh, Ja'Kir King was actually on years ago on the podcast talking about that, about how he thinks about the speaker movement as an integral part of... uh, I believe it's mixing process. But uh, is that kind of what you mean? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh,
1: it's so on point. I think it's, I mean, if we, if we use a simple idea as drums, uh, is a good thing to talk about in this context because like if you're doing super dense productions, you will usually go into drum samples to make everything work because it makes a speaker in context more happy to reproduce it rather than have like really complex waveforms. As in like an acoustic drum kit where you have more chaos, you have more like face issues and whatever. So, I mean, that is a thing that will keep a speaker more happy. And like the sounds that you're layering and, you know, how you mix it, like what will be a good thing for the speakers to actually reproduce? A simpler waveform is easier to produce. I mean, a lot of people like electronic music. Like it usually, electronic music for the most part has a tendency to to sound more pleasing to the ear. And metal, I mean, going looking at it through the years, has become more and more electronic music, like based. Yes, I mean even guitar sounds nowadays are really, I mean, it's more like electronic to my ears. It is like it's not like real amps and all the chaos, and it's like more. It's a pleasant like controlled kind of chaos it's like a chiseled carving it's like almost exactly it's just as much a synthesizer as anything else and that keeps the speaker happy you know nothing strange i mean it has a tendency to also translate better into different environments like smaller systems large systems etc so yeah that's pretty much uh, my idea
0: about it do you think that with older school metal is frequencies weren't nearly as carved and specific and the dynamics weren't as specific like multiband for instance compressing just the exact right part of the low end to move exactly the right way things like that weren't happening and uh with guitar distortion taking up all the frequencies um, in older recordings and then distorted bass taking all the low frequencies and then heavy ass vocals taking all of the mids and some of the lows and maybe some distortion on them too, taking up more of everything else, without that carved, how would that translate to clarity in a speaker? Sounds like a hell of a time for a speaker to try to reproduce that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even look at like old school metal. I mean, arrangement wise, again, like everything to me is arrangement. Like the mix is really arranging. And looking at like older school metal, it's easier, it, it's simpler arrangements. I mean, you have drums, bass, rhythm guitars, vocals, uh, pretty much basic, you know? You don't have like 20 layers of keys. You don't have uh, 40 layers of lead guitar work coming in with these uh, intricate effects and stuff like that. It's it's a whole different idea. And that makes like raw sounds, well arranged, like simpler arrangements make can also make a speaker very happy,
0: <laughs> I guess. I guess with the old school recordings I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about lots of the old school death metal recordings Mm -hmm. that are very muddy. I mean, they were cool for the time, but like if you compare them to now, Mm. like you don't have the the clarity whatsoever. I know there are some great old school recordings for sure. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about more the fact that with older metal recordings, like for instance, you put it next to an electronic record or a pop record, it would sound tiny... Yes. Or a rock record, even. It was sound tiny. It was depressing. And I don't think that happens quite as much anymore. It still happens to a degree, but not quite as much. Now, with metal production being a lot more electronic, like you said, uh, a lot more carved, a lot more uh, speaker-pleasing, it sounds a lot bigger and a lot closer to um, those more mainstream styles in, in terms of... Uh, overall quality and size. For, for sure, it's
1: I mean, these days speakers speakers are happier. Speakers are for sure happier these days with uh, everything we we do. Um, yeah, I think it's just a, like a natural progression of you know, people learning and styles evolving and whatever.
0: Yeah. So, um, being that that's something that you think about, what happens when you get a mix to master where uh you hear it and you just know you just know that uh that there's gonna be problems getting this to sound good on speakers do, do you uh, do you ever i'm just wondering because the very first time that my band ever got something mastered like we didn't know what we were doing i, w- I had just started producing and i thought that i needed to hire some super expensive mastering guys so we flew to la and went to Capitol records we're from atlanta and hired some major label 500 an hour guy. And this was in 2003 or something. And we went there and he listened to it. And the first thing he said was, this needs to be remixed. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a fucking bummer. <laughs> what a bummer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he was right. <laughs> what What do you do when that happens? The fun thing is, I think it doesn't happen so
1: much these days. I mean, generally I think that people are better at it. Like they have so much knowledge and even though they might have the experience, the knowledge makes up for it in quite a big way actually. And at least to the point where you don't need to remix it to get a good master out of it. But if I can tell like it's, well, this will never end up in a good place, I might say, yeah, I mean, you really need to remix it or just send me stems to master from so you can get this done in a good way, you know?
0: Yeah. I know how much you love stem mastering. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that I I do think that that's correct about the level of mixes these days. So I think that exceptional mixes are still rare. Like there's still very few people who can do something exceptional. However, the median average is pretty high yeah. compared to how it used to be. Now, there's just like people who don't do it professionally, who are just in bands who put together demos and stuff. Their demos sound better than mixes did once upon a time. Absolutely, it's crazy how good they sound. So I think that the the base median level, <laughs> base median, like <laughs> those two words <laughs> don't go together, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The base median level um, for mixing has gone up and uh, I mean it's the same with guitar playing guitar player I mean there's some arguments that like yeah, guitar players don't have the vibrato they used to blah 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 that shit (laughs) but the bass median technical level now is way higher than when I was learning it just is it just is what it is so you've definitely noticed that too for sure what do you think caused that I have my ideas I'm curious what yours are Uh, my
1: idea would be that I mean, all the information is out there. I mean, as you guys, I mean, you have, you, you show so many great... Yeah, we're, we're definitely part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, there's so much information to find out that it's really, really good. For the most part, I think there's a lot of good information to find. And the really bad information I think has gone down. Like it's easier to find good, good stuff nowadays, like on YouTube, like everywhere. That's my idea. But at the same time, as you say, like the median is, it is higher, but the real, really great stuff is just as rare, I think.
0: That's why when some people said that they hated me for starting URM because we we're going to take work away from them. I was like, <laughs> no, no, we're not. You're amazing. You've got nothing to worry about. Trust me. You've got nothing to worry about. Uh, people are not going to stop loving your work just because there's a school for recording. Yeah metal or for mixing metal like it, that doesn't it's not going to hurt anyone that's exceptional because um, it's still close to impossible to become exceptional at anything and I
1: think you're actually making it easier because I mean when you get to work with people they have a better You stand u- out that much more now <laughs> <laughs> I mean they have a better understanding of the process or like every, everything that is going on and Uh, I think that makes it easier to actually work with, you know, more people than before.
0: Well, yeah, I man, I remember when I was producing and mixing, when I got out of it in like 2000, 2014 was my last year when I started this. Um, Towards the last few years were the years that the home studio thing was starting to become real, which is... You know, when I realized I needed to start URM. But there were several years where it was becoming a thing that bands are no longer all doing full records. They want to do drums, then record guitars themselves, then come in for vocals and mix. And that's just becoming the way it's done. Or bands are recording themselves or recording with a friend. That's just the way that things were going. Um, and there was no way to stop it, and it was just becoming more and more and more every year. I feel like I noticed it in 2008 or 9 starting, and by 2013 and 14, it was pretty obvious that this is what's happening. And so it, it's a good idea to probably help it not suck because this sucks right now. I, I remember thinking to myself, this is not what I got into this for, is to deal with these idiots who can't do anything and then have to save their work. It was so, so frustrating. And it was almost every band sending me stuff to mix that they recorded horribly, horribly. Um, I feel like that doesn't quite happen. So much, not like it used to, um, and I'm I'm talking about sign bands too. So I think that the overall level of engineering has gone up. Maybe not everyone's exceptional or anything, but the base level is high enough to where they can provide you with things that are mixable, yeah. at least. Exactly. But they're not a disaster. It's hard
1: to find those situations nowadays when when it's just plain wrong you know, what people are doing. I mean, uh, even though it's not exceptional, like, I mean, everyone can record a
0: DI today
1: and know what they're doing.
0: Which, believe it or not, in 2013 was not the case.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: I, I don't understand why, because all you had to do back then was plug it in.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but for some reason it is <laughs> that, different. That didn't change.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the, it's weird because the process of recording a DI has not changed.
1: Yeah. But, but still, it's better. I mean, yeah, I mean, levels are, are great. I mean, there's less... I never find, like, people having issues with uh, with hum and stuff like that anymore. At least not here. It's... Uh, when I get sent DIs, it's like, yeah, well, finally, a great DI. I've been missing this for so many years, and <laughs> now it works. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a, a great thing. So, your geographic area kind of helped you fall also in, strangely enough, with Pop production, which led to you working with Eurovision, funny enough, they do have metal on there, and we we see the Eurovision metal winners um on the internet, but uh you know that's not a metal show for anyone who isn't aware of that uh It's a lot more like American Idol right yeah yeah it's that sort of that sort of thing, so being that you come from the metal world uh what was it like? Having that come across your desk and working, you know, in that world.
1: The simplest
0: way to explain it would be
1: like, I'm living in the Nashville of Sweden.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is where?
1: Right in between Gothenburg and Stockholm, like right in between. and Okay. And it's like Swedish, I said, Swedish pop and country was really, really, really huge. And like in this part of it, you had almost all of those productions being made. So wait,
0: wait, wait, hold on yeah, a yeah. second. So when you say the Swedish Nashville, you mean the country music like what they have here in the U.S., like country music, like cowboy hats and stuff?
1: It is the the closest resemblance to to what we have here. I mean, yeah, I mean, like okay. Nashville, well, for Sweden, it's like Nashville is like country music and the, that whole scene is just huge. Everything regarding country comes out of Nashville. And the same thing around these parts, like all the, well, not all all of it, but most of it, like Eurovision stuff and oh, okay. Swedish pop
0: and kind of country. So you mean it's like Nashville in that it's the like the mecca for popular music? Exactly, in that
1: niche, you know. Got it. So growing up here, me being more like just focused on metal and rock, the big studios around here, because you have to know it's like in the middle of the countryside, it's like the outskirts of Sweden. You know, it's not really, it's not Stockholm, it's not Gothenburg, but still we had large studios here, which is kind of weird. But all those studios were focused on doing that kind of Swedish pop and country rock type of music. So me being interested in, you know, the large studio format and just living here, that was just a very natural progression for me to just fall into that because the scene was a lot way bigger than the metal stuff that we had here even though that was my focus it was a lot easier to go into that thing with uh you know the swedish music
0: stuff do you, do you think partially it's because you lived where you lived and not in gothenburg for instance for sure yeah, yeah yeah like if you lived in gothenburg you think it would have been easier to just do metal for instance
1: absolutely yeah without without a question i mean it was just saturated with that kind of music here and it was a lot easy to fall into, and I'm glad I did because I learned so much from going into that and doing like a totally different genre, and did quite a few successful projects there. And yeah, I had so much use for for that knowledge working in metal
0: as well. I want to hear more about how the metal knowledge translates, and the reason, and I have a selfish reason. I'm curious about your experience, but I also have a selfish reason for this, which I'll explain. Which is, uh, you know, at URM we're mostly metal and rock. That's that's our thing, and we're not really deviating from that. We'll do other things here and there, but that's our world. And uh, people who don't, who aren't into that, tell me they'd be interested if we did other styles. And my answer is always, we have the best people in the world teaching we're not just showing you death metal, we show you how to mix and master and record period. And the skills will uh, translate. And if you can do metal, you can do other stuff because metal is the fucking hardest. So I'm curious to how you uh, found the skills translating.
1: As we said before, like going into electronic music and things like that. I mean, when you go into that pop world You really need to know what keeps a speaker happy. It's very very important because I mean it's a different thing like how you produce something, how you arrange something to work in a pop world is nowadays it's really no different to metal I guess. But back in those days like 20 years ago it was was quite different. So I kind of got this I mean got into this electronic world of doing stuff and I could apply that thinking to metal. So I mean I've always had this idea of producing metal as equally being electronic music. Just because I had so much to do with, with that type of production work. And nowadays it's like, it's so much electronic that it's, uh, I mean, you can almost not tell the difference, I
0: guess. It's just a lot of the same techniques applied.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just a bit different, but I mean, it's it's the same kind of aesthetic. It uh, may, may sound weird, but
0: yeah same kind of polish making space for things making it hit real fucking hard
1: yeah yeah exactly i mean and that's arrangement i mean the really good producers that i work with really really new arrangement i mean to the point where like they didn't record anything unless they hadn't had had uh, notation like a full score of what was going down. Oh, like like real musicians. Yeah, exactly. Like real musicians, like yeah. the most amazing people. I've been in recording sessions. I'm just getting goosebumps just thinking of it because, I mean, in metal, there's so much to work around, you know. I mean, there's so much chaos and you need to, well, fix this and that. But like really professional musicians in that context, it's it's amazing to see what's going down, like what happens. And that's a whole different... Different thing to to metal production. I mean, even to this day. I mean, uh, and the producers. I mean, they had so immense overview of everything. Like they knew exactly what was going to happen in what way, and there isn't a note going down that hasn't been planned. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Like when, you know, we have all these um, theoretical geniuses in the room that knows exactly, they're talking like chord structures and arrangements, ah, we can do this and that, or, well, if you do that, I'll just let me note that down in this little data. and then they go in and play it perfectly. It's like a, a classical orchestra, you know, it's like... It's so different.
0: Metal is very street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You no. Know, yeah, yeah, no matter how good people are in metal and there are some very good people in metal, there's something about the way it's made that's just very uh it's like street smarts versus book smarts almost. Those kinds of people you're talking about those professional arrangers, composers, yeah, you know, they're like the brain surgeons mm. of music. Yeah. They're so educated and so able to use their education on demand basically yeah for amazing results it's it's amazing to watch
1: yeah it's a whole different thing I, i'm very glad i got to see that because well nowadays it, that doesn't happen as much you know because that whole professional side of it has pretty much gone away i'm sad to say I, I don't see anyone do that at all anymore nothing like good or bad about it it's just like the natural progression of things i guess i mean people produce I mean, it's new styles and it's a different way of working. but it's really cool to have like seen that you know and and see the benefits of actually doing that stuff. I mean, I mean I, I can apply that a lot in pre-production and as much as I can to really like plan every note out in in ways that might not be as
0: normal, I guess so just out of curiosity, you know you're talking about how metal helped you with other styles, I'm wondering how this stuff influence your metal production.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) I guess that was what I was talking about, really. (laughs) Not the other way around. Yeah. The thing is with, I mean, doing these types of styles, going into metal production, I think it it lets you know, like arrangement wise and creating like sounds and songs, basically, to to see how that translates through the process um, in a different way. I mean, metal as you say, it's more like street. It doesn't really have that type of progression. I think in production a lot. It, it's a different kind of way of working. But so that's why I had so much use for it. I guess.
0: And you've been able to incorporate it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like just the, yeah, just a way of working, and being very very definite about things and making decisions along the way. That has been really helpful. Uh, like w- when you're in a room with really great professionals and they're not afraid to make decisions. That's a that's a thing I see today that's still like a problem, <laughs> a huge problem, I think, is people are afraid to actually decide on stuff.
0: Tell me more about that, because I've noticed that more in interpersonal life, you know, and also in business too. i am just noticed that it's very easy to say, I don't like this. It would be way better if this was different. It's very Different to say, I'm deciding that we're doing this. I actually think that a lot of people are afraid in life to make, to just make a decision. It's amazing to me how much an advantage you can get in life just if you get comfortable with taking decisive action because so few people do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, totally agree. I mean, making decisions, it will always involve some kind of a trade off. And the art is balancing that trade off. In pursuit of perfection, no one really wants to decide it because there will always be it will always involve some kind of a imperfection, <laughs> so to speak. What do you mean by a trade-off? The the trade-off is like when you make a decision, like let's say you record guitars and you decide not to capture a DI. You just <laughs> you just go with that. This is this guitar sound is really what we're going for. Ballsy. Ballsy, yeah. It's I mean, yeah. And it's it's working really well, and you decide we don't need to capture DI. That will later, of course, involve some some kind of a compromise, like later in the process. Like if you you can't redo the guitar sound to really have that maybe like ten or fifteen percent better quality, like which which you might or not be going for. But it's really really good, and. Being able to make that decision in the production process by making a decision, you mean committing?: Yeah, exactly. like, like deciding on like we're not going to be safe here. We, we're going to commit to this to these sounds, to you know whatever is going on, I think is really, really good and actually boosts creativity rather than hinders it, because I see so many people are, are afraid of committing to, to things, are afraid to make decisions and they're, and they're not letting their creative side really come through because they're all worried <laughs> about what's going on how how everything is going to end up you know
0: hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love you've probably heard me talk about nail the mix before and if you're a member you already know how amazing it is At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lama God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes Everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Wanna know something interesting? One of my business partners, Joey Sturgis, you know, he's partially responsible for the in the box metal recording stuff with a with a pod and no gear like or amp sims. Like he's one of the one of the people who helped start that whole movement. And a lot of people accused him of, you know, always working off of presets and a template and like all this shit. That's completely the opposite of how he worked and uh and his uh one of the biggest things that he would advocate and do is commit it doesn't matter if you're in the box out of the box you're not using presets you're making an amazing sound and then you're committing it the end and he would always make a point of committing as quickly as possible with everything so that you could uh so that you would be forced to you would be forced to live with it, and so either it's good or it's bad. And if it's bad, you have to live with it too, so that next time you don't make the same bad decision. But uh, but even in the completely in the box environment, new school recording, where uh, you know old timers would be like, it's all templates and presets. Not true. They were still committing. they that same ethos that came from the analog world of, you know, uh, you can only do this a limited number of times. You got to commit. He was doing it in uh, the digital world, which I think is in part one of the reasons that his recordings did better than other people's back then, because he was using that ethos, which I I think is uh, super, super important. I feel like if you're not committing, you don't have confidence in your work. Exactly, yeah. If you're not coming from a place of confidence, your decision making is going to be weird. Exactly. Um, I mean, you you can't make
1: the perfect decision every time. But the more experience you get, it will be, I mean, the more experience you get, it, it will be totally fine, <laughs> you know? Like if, if you commit to something and it's not the most perfect thing in the world, if you're good enough, you will still make it work. It will still be a purpose there. And it doesn't really matter if you spend 10 extra days on some weird detail that that's not really gonna matter. You know, it's that kind of a thing that it's like, it's letting go of total perfection and just having the big picture to see what actually is going to work versus like fulfilling some, you know, idea of something else. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Do you think that that's one of the roles that a great producer plays is making decisions?
1: Yeah. Nowadays, more so than before, because, yeah, it's that fear of committing and. Having someone, a good producer, experienced person who knows what they're doing and helping an artist to make decisions and committing to those decisions, I think is really, really important.
0: Yeah, you know, because one of the things that happens when you're an inexperienced recording engineer or mixer or whatever like artists are is that fear of committing does happen. And so you can go into these weird rabbit holes of uh, working on crazy details that don't matter. And so I think that that actually is going to be worse these days because artists know how to record themselves a little, Mm. but they don't have the experience. Some do, but mostly they don't have the experience of always knowing what. To commit to and whatnot. Without having the right guide, I think that actually their ability to record can get in the way time wise. It's like technical skill without wisdom, almost. Yeah. That said, I still think that musicians should learn how to record. Yeah.
1: <laughs> of course. From time to time, I mean, if I'm doing mix sessions, there can be these, these like huge arrangements with, you know, orchestras and keys and backing vocals and whatever you know and doing a mix session i often get get asked the question like do we send all of this stuff or what do you want, want us to send and i'm always like if you have like good balances of really real, really intricate parts like a lot of stuff going on that's up to the producer in my world to actually decide on not the mix engineer the mix engineer can can go through all that stuff and probably end up with exactly the same balances as the producer did because that's how it's supposed to sound musically. So I always say like if you have good balances uh, like of these key parts don't send me like 40 or 60 tracks of whatever. Make (laughs) stems and just like mix it down to a more manageable size. And I know uh, like Chris Lord, Algae. I've heard of him. Yeah, <laughs> this this guy, and he's a, a lot into like managing tracks, from what I can see, like uh, to just make it fit on an analog desk. And it's the, the same thing. It's like decide on balances and commit to that stuff because the next step in the process will be so much more simple. And if something would get messed up, it's A lot more time efficient it's a lot easier to actually just ask for hey could you just split that up into two sections maybe instead of just one you know actually it surprises people in a way that i i think is pretty weird because i think they're they're so not used to making that kind of decision and think that the mix will you know solve a lot of problems and stuff that but but really it doesn't, and it's more about just fitting everything together in a good musical way and not worry so much about all those really, really minute details that, you know, no one really cares about, I guess.
0: You know, also, if you don't do that, you know, say you have a huge arrangement and you don't get sub mixes happening and balances sent to the mixer, you know, if you don't get it in line with your vision, basically what you're saying is, we don't have a vision for this we want you to have a vision for this, exactly.
1: And in a way, I think that's fine. But then you're not asking for a mix. Not like in my world, that's production. I mean, if you if, you, if you're is. creating everything, like yeah, I mean, all the, everything from scratch. You should have the vision for it. Then you're not mixing it. Do you think the modern definition blurs the lines at all? Yeah, it does. But at the same time, I think musically. It's better to have a vision. <laughs> yes, like I if agree. you have a plan for it, it shouldn't be you, sh- you shouldn't have to rely on someone else to come up with a vision for what you're doing. I mean, then they're the artist, just as much as you are. I, I agree. I don't like to subscribe to that. I think that like a producer is supposed to produce and a mixer is supposed to mix, and an artist is supposed to write the music, and you know, and everyone is working together to create this thing. Yeah, it, it's weird that that this like idea of a vision is pretty much, what do you say, it's um, it, it just, you just wait for it to happen in a way because you don't have it or like what what artistry is there
0: then? <laughs> so, you know how at the beginning of the conversation we were talking about how there's a certain amount of things that you're born with, you're born a certain way, like with your talent, Right your intelligence, um, your aptitude to work hard. I mean, you can develop your talent, you can develop uh, your work ethic, but whether or not you're predisposed to work your ass off, that's kind of already in you. The ability to have vision. I feel... And I want to know your thoughts. I feel is another one of those things because the people I know that have vision, they don't try to have it. And I can tell you, when I have it for something, I'm not trying. It just happens. Uh, like when I see that something needs to needs to be done for a reason, which will create an outcome. I'm not sitting there trying to have a vision for something. It just comes to me. Um, it's like a light bulb turns on. And the people I know, artists, entrepreneurs, whatever, uh, who have a vision for things, I don't feel like they're trying either. They're just gifted with that. That's one of their talents is they have that. And I've noticed that people who don't, and it's fine. If you don't, you should find someone who does but uh, and work with them. But uh, people who don't, I've tried to coach them into it, and it doesn't really work. It's almost because their brain doesn't their brain doesn't, isn't wired that way. Their brain is wired for other things. I'm just curious w- what your thoughts are on that because what I'm hearing is that, and my understanding is that there's some bands who they want to be in a band, they love playing music, but they just don't have that chip in their head, the vision chip. And so you kind of need to provide it for them. I'm wondering if you think that it's um, something that you're born with, or something you have to try to do? I agree with everything that you said. Like, all I
1: can say is, yes. (laughs) That's my experience as well. Like really gifted, really great artists have a vision. And it's nothing you have to force, like try and come up with. Yeah, that's a true thing to me. Like as an artist to not have a vision, my question is like, are you an artist? Maybe you're more of a craftsman.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. When I was at Berkeley, um, I remember Eddie Kramer, the producer, came to give a master class. This was before I was studying production. I just heard the guy that did like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix is going to be talking to like twenty production students, and I was friends, I was roommates with one of them, and he just invited me, and so I went and uh, listened to him talk and asked him a question. What was different? between people like Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix than, like, other people you've worked with who didn't become legends? Any of these legendary people you worked with, what set them apart? Because obviously they're, you know, Jimmy Page and Jimi Hendrix are very different from each other, but they had to have something in common that sets them apart. There's a reason they became legends. And what he said was their vision was miles beyond everybody else. While most artists could see, you know, 10 feet in front of them, they could see several football fields down into the future. Uh, they just had vision like nobody else. And he said, that's that's what set them apart. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I bet you they didn't try.
1: Yeah, exactly. I bet they didn't even try. It, they just had it. My perfect world is that I work with artists that have great vision. And my thing would be to just help them do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to invent their vision because that's that's the yeah, that that's where I'm having trouble, you know, with the whole thing. Like great vision creates great artists in a way. So
0: yeah. So how would you get into a position where you can work with only artists who have a great vision. What do you what do you think it takes to get to that point? Cuz that's not that's a great goal, but I don't think that many people are even close to that. But there's like two goals I've noticed that lots of producers and mixers have. Goal one, work with great artists that have great vision. Goal two, be able to choose who you work with. I think th- those are kind of universal producer goals, mixer, whatever, audio people. They're both very, very difficult to achieve. What do you think it, uh, it takes to get to a point where those are the artists that you're working with? You find yourself in a situation where the anomaly is the artist with no vision.
1: Yeah, I think that... I think, like, the way to get there is... I mean, I, I've been quite lucky over the years to actually have been working with artists that have a real, really strong vision of what they want to do. And at the same time, those are the most successful projects. And I think that's not a coincidence at all. I think to get to that point, you have to have a lot of experience, be really, really good and work your ass off to get to the point where you can actually help that type of artist be what they what they want to be. And that just takes you know, going through all the shit for a decade at least i mean to find that because you don't automatically end up there or or even be lucky to end up there you have to do the work to see to find those things and and in a way i think that you just end up working with the right people when you have the right experience and everything is there you're you're working with the with the people that have the same experience as you in a way, like most of the time, I mean...
0: Like you're evenly, you're evenly matched.
1: Exactly, you're evenly matched and that's what's going to happen most of the time. Like if you find yourself not, ha- not working with artists that have that artistry or that vision, that means, I think a lot, that you're not really there yet. I mean, you're not as good
0: yet as you would need to be. And so just work away. You know, that's, that's kind of the same idea that uh, the person who you attract is a reflection of where you're at in life, um, which I really do believe. You can learn a lot about somebody by who they're married to or who they're dating. Somebody in the URM group the other day posted about how do you get more test mixes? Like, should I just start emailing managers? And it's like, no, they'll come to you. And it's it's the same idea. They're going to come to people who are appropriate for their level. Why would they just go to someone who, like, why would some famous band, like a Demu Borgir or someone like that, who's like has this like massive track record, super successful records, worked with like so many of the best people, just like send some guy who only works with local bands a a test mix? Why they they wouldn't do it? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make it's, any it's sense. It's absurd if you yeah, think yeah, about it. Yeah. I
1: mean, me and uh, uh, David Castillo, good friend, is. I mean, we, we discussed this a lot, really. I like David. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. And we come to that the conclusion, like if you decide that you want to charge like 50 bucks to make to do a mix, then you're going to attract the people that are willing to pay 50 bucks for a mix. Exactly. And that's not Dimo Borgir exactly that's that's not dimmer and we charge a lot more than that so we don't see a lot of you know bad projects i guess and that's just a natural progression i mean i also started out like doing like a lot of tests and you know free projects and whatever you know but at some point it it gets to that like where you see talented people actually they want they want to pay because they they see that it's worth it you know and that's just a natural progression like as you work with better and more talent and they're successful, they put a lot of worth in, I mean, having a good process. And that's going to just cost them money and they're willing to spend that money. It's pretty easy.
0: They're not going to spend it on somebody they don't have the confidence in, number one. Number two, if uh, you're only good enough to be working with $50 bands and you try to charge $1,000 for a mix or 2000 for a mix, you're not going to get any clients. That's not going to work. You can't just charge what the uh, big boys and big girls charge because you want to. It's a natural progression. Um, I've always said that the market determines your worth. How much should I charge? How much should I charge? It's a question that comes up all the time. The way that I've answered is uh, look at, I mean, there's a few ways that you can try to guess, but the real answer is the market tells you what your worth, and so look at people in your area that are comparable, if there's any. Uh, who charges the most? Who charges the least? There, there's your range. Put yourself somewhere in there. If uh, pick a price. If people pay it. If if you book the shit out of your studio at that price, you can charge a little more. If nobody's coming at that price charge less. Mm. The end. It's that simple. (laughs) The end.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. There's nothing more to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, people won't pay you if they don't think you're worth it. And if they do think you're worth it, they'll pay a shitload of money. Yeah, exactly. If they have a shitload of money to pay. Yeah.
1: And they will pay Ted Jensen 5,000 euros to add one dB of low end to a record.
0: Because... That's what it was. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 And it was, it's worth it because. And it yeah, was worth yeah, yeah. it. It was. Worth, I was going to say, <laughs> I didn't feel like I was being overcharged either. Well, I mean, it was Roadrunner's money, but uh, but I don't feel like that was an inappropriate price. Sounded fucking awesome.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And and that. I mean, you're paying for the experience. You're not paying for the change. You know, if you think that, oh, after we spend this amount of money is going to change this much you know that that that's not the thing that you're paying for you're, you're paying for for someone to do just enough to just do the thing that's required to really make it a professional product
0: yeah i've noticed a lot of people getting frustrated because um they'll get approached by people to record or mix and then um they'll shoot them a price and the person will be like, that's a crazy price. I was hoping to pay $70 for an entire album mix or something crazy. They'll get mad about that. I'm thinking, I understand that you're frustrated, but you're pointing the frustration in the wrong direction. You shouldn't be pointing it at the person who wanted the $70 mix. They're a $70 artist. Uh, That's who they are. You don't fault them for not being a top tier artist they're just not however what that says is that low tier artists see you as an option which means that probably high tier and mid tier artists don't and that means you need to get better exactly yeah yeah so point that frustration at yourself
1: (laughs) exactly yeah there's no one else's fault (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, definitely not. So speaking of pointing frustration at yourself, I think one of the reasons that people don't do it is they don't like to be uncomfortable. You know, the truth is uncomfortable a lot, but you actually were saying that you enjoy being uncomfortable, especially in a studio session helps keep you on your toes. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that. Maybe in light of the new soil work or something. Yeah, yeah. Were there any moments where that made you feel uncomfortable?
1: Well, a soil work session is always uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, Why? No, no, it's it just this, it's so much fun because it, it goes, like all the rules go out the door. So that makes it uncomfortable because you can't really rely on usual stuff.
0: Not uncomfortable in a personal way, but like out of your comfort zone.
1: Out of your comfort zone, Yes. And I mean, it's so much fun to be challenged like that. I mean, you know, basically I come from a world where I feel very comfortable in, all right, let's do this session and let's set up, set that up and let's record that and let's go ahead and do that. And yeah, that's, oh, very nice, cool. And let's do that. But with soil work, it's everything happens all the time. And everyone has ideas of how things should turn out and you don't have time to do everything in a, you know, in a very easy going pace. Everything is chaotic. And me being kind of perfectionist, that challenges me in a very good way because I really need to focus on, you know, the aesthetic of what's going on and just have that end up as great as possible. And that can really make things (laughs) weird for me. But challenging and very, very good. So, with soul work, like when we're doing guitar sounds, David who plays a lot of the guitars is, I mean, he just wants a different sound for each song, and I love that. It's like, whoa, that's awesome. So we have like all these amps set up and just combine things and let's try, let's try this on this riff and this on that riff, and that's that's very unorthodox. Like usually it's like, yeah, we use this amp and that cab on this. This album. is the rhythm this tone the for rhythm the whole tone. album. Yes. And we have like, you know, we record 16 or 17 songs with all different rhythm tones. And that's crazy, but it's so much
0: fun. That's intense. And I never used the D.I.'s. <laughs> that's uh, old school. Yeah. That's uh, that's like some Metallica nine months on an album stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. So was every song started from scratch in all elements? On a solo work production. Basically
1: what happens is... Well, we, we, we set up all the drums and, I mean, we start like that. All the songs are, you know, have been worked on and are ready to just be recorded in the studio. So we start with that and then we have everything set up. As Bastion, it's like, he might play a few songs and then it's like, yeah, I'm tired now. Just go ahead with everything else. And then we start creating. We might be doing guitars. We might be doing, you know some weird overdubs to demo tracks and go in between everything and yeah and just be creative so everything starts with the drums basically just have one solid building block and then anything can happen on top of that
0: for like the longest time (laughs) so uh, you said you set everything up. so basically you're ready to go with anything at any time with
1: anything at any time at any point in time during the 24 hours I mean, we can do violin, cello, piano stuff, guitars. I mean, whatever. Everything is set up and we go in between. Like, I don't even have the gear to pull that off. So I have to like take photos and take notes and like, you know, borrow mics from whatever and just set that up in a few minutes and like go back and forth between anything. And it's like totally chaotic. So yeah, it's, it's very inspiring as well.
0: What, what is it about them that makes it that way?
1: It's just like how they write songs and how they don't want to get locked into the metal formula. I mean, they're really doing extravagant stuff today, I think. it's uh, It really goes out of the box from what you'd expect. And uh, yeah, they like it that way. They really want to be in that place where it's not... Yeah, I mean, you have to have a reaction to it. My Even though you might hate it or you might love it, but you're still going to react to it. I mean, it's so easy to hear something like, oh, that's good. And then it's like, oh, yeah, that's just as great as everything else. And, you know, it's over with. Yes, yeah, so they really want to challenge yeah, everything that's going on with their style and what everyone else are doing.
0: You know, earlier you said that uh, you find bands that you're appropriately matched to. Those are the best relationships, and uh, I want to point out that this is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Because not everybody would be cool as a producer working like that. Uh, I know a lot of producers who are also awesome, who that would drive them nuts, and it's not. That's just not how they work. Doesn't matter how good they are. That would just not be a good match, but you're willing to, you like doing that. They have this interesting style of creating and you're into it. And so uh, it's not just all your experience and skill. It's also the fact that um, personality wise, you're suited for working with them and their vision for how how things work. And I'm guessing you don't have to try to be that kind of person that's who you are right
1: yeah it's just a natural thing and i mean we have so much fun of course doing a soul work session and i mean everyone is really into that process and it's like it's like the perfect balance of people you know and yeah it's just working out so well and oh yeah we have a lot of fun and great music is coming out of it so
0: yeah awesome well we have a few questions here from listeners Wondering if uh, you don't mind me asking a few. Yeah, of course. Okay. So, Jared Desrockers is wondering, what's your approach to starting a mix? And how do you decide what will sit where, like kick above the bass or bass above the kick? I just want to say that whatever you say, this is the kind of thing that's better done on video. Mm-hmm. I'm still I'm curious to what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah, well, I, I usually go with this, like, j- just to get me started. Actually, I, I kind of have this forward going back thing. You know, I, I I start with the main elements. It's gonna be like just in front of the, well, especially if I don't know the the project, like what I'm, I, I don't know what what to expect really. I just go with like the main stuff that I know. Pretty much is going to be there like, you know, kick, snare, vocals and then probably the bass and and just make everything happen around it to get a rough, you know. And and for me, like, like, especially like kick and bass stuff is for me, the kick always has to be hard hitting and will always be above the bass. I, I, I never understood like having the bass below the kick. It just sound unnatural to me, always. Like I've never really got into that, but th- that's like how I start a mix, just going like front to back really quickly to get a rough. And then I just start
0: fine tuning and, you know, doing whatever I need to do. So get it sounding like a song as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah, with the few elements that I pretty much know are going to be there. So I I end up, I end up with a rough of the song where I have the front, like the most important elements there, and then I go from there basically, yeah. Just to have it sound like a song and then just break it down, you know. And like break it down, I mean like, I always work with everything on <laughs> for the most part. I never like go to solo and check out stuff more, more than like, I'm just creating the rough, just to get an idea of what's there. But when I have the song, Pretty much, all right, now it sounds like a song to me. Then I just work with everything on and very seldom go into like specific solo stuff and
0: things like that. Makes sense. Uh, Question from Scott Bennett. What do you think is a good balance between working to improve your shortcomings versus only focusing on your strengths and uh, delegating the other stuff out? Like, for instance, there's a lot of producers who are... Not the best engineers, right? This is an older school thing, but it's just a for instance. They're not the best engineers, so they'd hire an engineer and be there in the room so that they can produce, and the other person operates Pro Tools at the speed of light, basically. And the producer's not that great at Pro Tools. Or you're going to track guitars, and the guitars need to be set up, but you're not that great at setting them up, so hire a a guitar tech to come in and set up all the guitars just stuff like that that I'm thinking what am I not an expert in? I was not an expert at tuning drums like I could do it but I wasn't amazing at it so I would hire a drum tech on my sessions to come and get them tuned great Um, rather than working super hard to become amazing at tuning drums I hired someone that was super amazing at tuning drums to tune them on my drum sessions
1: my point of view is that you should be able to do, especially in, in these days, you should be able to do a full production by yourself without having the need to outsource anything. So you need to be good at all aspects to the point where it doesn't hinder you in the way you, you create any like recording production. And from that point on, there will always be someone better that you could hire to do like certain stuff. And when you find those people and you know that, all right, this guy can edit drums in half the time that I can do it. And mm-hmm. as you say, like th- this guy is um, much better at tuning drums and I tune drums like three times a year. Why should I even bother getting better at, at it? I spend all that time when I can just call someone. And it's, it's yeah, it's striking that balance. But at the same time, you, you just have to be so good at everything so that you can do everything by yourself. Yes, yeah, so that, that you can do the process, go through it every time and not have it like, yeah, hinder the production in a way.
0: I agree because these things I, I was talking about are a luxury. You can't always afford a drum tech on every session. I, I think most producers are willing to negotiate budget. Like for instance, what if there's a band you really want to work with who's really awesome, but they're just not that big. You know, there's some bands like that who... They've been around for a while, but they're just not that big, and so they might not have the most amazing budget in the world. But you want to do the record, and there's certain luxuries you can't take. So, what are you going to do? Not do a great job just because you can't hire the drum tech? No,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that's the that's the thing. Like when you hire someone to do some like some part of production, if you don't know how to do that part, you can't possibly hire someone else to do it because you don't know. If that's a good job or like if they're doing a good job or not. I mean, it's very important that you know everything in the production process so you can hire someone else effectively
0: to do something in the process. So become an expert in production. Yeah. And then hire specialists as needed. Exactly. I agree with that completely. When I tell people that I would hire the drum tech or the guitar tech or whatever, I still think that every producer should know the basics of setting up a guitar. Yeah. The guitar techs I I would bring in were fucking amazing at it. So way better than me. So I'd bring them in because it would be that much better. But that doesn't mean that I couldn't do it. I could usually do it better than the guys in the band. So if needed, I'd do it. But if we had the budget for it, why not bring someone in who's fucking excellent? But I still learned how to do it on a shitty guitar that I was happy to break so that I could if I needed to because there's not... Always going to be a the budget or b the time. Exactly. You can't let things suffer because of that.
1: Going back to what we started to talk about, mastering. Like, if you know how to create a good master, you don't have to be an expert at it. Just know what you need to go through to make it work. You know, that's easier for you to to give it to someone else to master, since you will have a whole different like set of expectations for what it's going to be like and you can compare to what you're doing and see if it's you know if it's worth i mean you have to become an expert in all stages and even if you don't have the time to become the you know best at everything you need to have a foundation like with for everything so, so that you can do it in yeah, to a certain point.
0: I even think you should have a foundation in different musical instruments. Absolutely, yeah. Like for instance, I learned drums for six months, not because I wanted to become a drummer, but I wanted to be able to communicate with drummers better Yeah. and just understand what what they did. Exactly, yeah. Those things go a really, really long way. Yeah,
1: all of that helps. Even, you know, you knowing musical theory and all of that stuff is can help a lot in just the communication part and... And again, you don't need to be an expert. You just need to know, you know, you can communicate in in a good way.
0: Well, being an expert at production doesn't mean being an expert at every one of those little things. Being an expert at production doesn't mean that you're an expert guitar player and an expert drummer and an expert singer and an expert keyboard player. But it does mean that you know enough about each one of those things so that you can properly communicate with someone who does those things so you can get the best out of them and you know... What they what they can sound like, what they can't sound like, and how they work in the first place. You need to know enough for that, and by knowing all those different things, that gets you closer to being an expert. It's uh, there's a lot of things that maybe you don't need to be uh, surgeon level on, but you still need like a good basic knowledge of uh, all those things. In my opinion, yeah,
1: exactly. If if you see that you're having trouble with anything, like. Yeah, if you feel uncomfo- uncomfortable in the production process doing anything, you I'd say you need to put some more work into it to get your
0: skill level up. Yeah, you know the time to, for instance, hire a drum editor is not when you don't know how to do it. It's when you've done it so much that uh, uh, that you've got it. You've done it so much and so well uh, that you've come to a point in your productions where uh, it drives you crazy, or because of the quality of work that you've done, um, you've gotten to a point where you can afford it and it saves you a bunch of time. Yeah, You don't do it because you suck at it and you want someone to save you. You do it because you worked to a point where you can hire out and it just helps a workflow that was already that was already good, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's always what happens here in production. I mean, when we're recording drums, as soon as we're done, I just send it out to my assistant and he just, you know, edits everything while we're doing something else. and uh, So so it's always like a good workflow. So, yeah, the process doesn't get hindered by, you know, well, we just need to do that for a few hours or a couple of days. And like, it's always a creative workflow.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I'm sure that you have how you like to hear edited drums and uh, you had to communicate that to your assistant.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you need to know how to edit drums. So you have, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, easy. Yeah, it, it's amazing to me how people th- seem to think that, that that all something like that is, is lining things up and which it totally isn't. I mean, there's that part of it, but uh, it's more about understanding music and rhythm and being able to hear properly so actually I, I actually feel like hiring an editor to be a good editor who gets hired by somebody else you actually have to be a pretty sophisticated listener yes in order to be like someone who gets hired there you know there's a few editors out there who get hired by a lot of really good producers um and these guys are really really good really good editors but the thing is they're really good musicians too And really good engineers, and they have very sophisticated tastes, and that's part of why they're good editors, and that's why they can work with different producers, and some producers want it 100% robotic, some people want it to sway a little, some people like it behind the beat, somebody wants it 90% or like tight hands, but the feet need to be whatever, like for for them to understand all these things they have to be a sophisticated listener
1: absolutely i mean just vocal editing i mean that's i I, I think that's harder than drums because i mean most people yeah drums you you have a grid and you know that's uh, even though it's not all about that it's still like a good reference (laughs) but for vocals yes that's different i mean of course i mean clean pitch is a is clean pitch but at the same time there's a lot of instances where you don't want it to be right on the note and you have to listen in context with stuff and and see what's actually going to work and same thing with drums but vocals it's, I think that's next level actually. I think that's harder for people to get into than drums.
0: Just because it requires you to understand not just pitch but emotion?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah that that's quite yeah i think that's actually quite funny because yeah it's so easy to edit things like into a robotic state where it's technically perfect but it's but it lacks the emotion and with vocals that can be quite i mean you have to understand the artist and you have to understand the the whole thing and it's yeah that's harder for people i think
0: and there's much wider of a range for what's acceptable with vocals however what's interesting about that wide range is that there's usually only one thing that's right for a certain artist so finding that thing and understanding that thing that is a different level of sophistication it's not just tuning notes exactly to a pitch yeah that's part of it but definitely not all of it no not the complete truth not at all yeah Well, Plek, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think this is a good place to end the podcast. I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at A.L. Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.